This is the 12 Songs of Christmas, the On the Road edition. I'm visiting family in Canada for the first time in more than two years for Canadian Thanksgiving this year. But I didn't get time to record an introduction and conclusion before I left, so I'm doing that today on my phone. This week's episode is one I've looked forward to with Ben Jaffe, creative director and tuba player for the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. Historically, the Preservation Hall Jazz Band has been associated with traditional jazz, but Jaffe hasn't been doctrinaire about that. Or, more accurately, he defines it and New Orleans music a little more broadly. Because of that, he's gone to musical and physical places that would leave traditionalists apoplectic. But he has also made the band a part of contemporary culture in a way that few entities the band's age are. When Dave Grohl and Foo Fighters came to New Orleans as part of their Sonic Highways project, they played a pop-up show in Preservation Hall with current members of the Hall Band. Today, I talked to Ben about all this stuff, and he can fill in the blanks. But before we get there, I want to thank you for listening to 12 Songs. The Christmas season is approaching, and it's here if you go to Costco. With that in mind, I thought I'd like to do something special for you. Send me an email at alex at myspiltwithatmilk.com and I'll send you a special listeners-only 2021 Christmas mix. Each year, I make a Christmas mix for family and friends, and I'd like to start to extend that tradition to you, the listeners. My Christmas mixes are like the show itself, all over the board, and they become a part of my holiday season that I'd like to share. Send me an email at alex at myspiltmilk.com and I'll get one over to you soon after. And if you have a Christmas mix or playlist that you're proud of, please fire it over. I'd love to hear it. I'd like to start a conversation over mixes, playlists, and our favorite Christmas music. Speaking of favorites, today my good friend Alexandra Scott and I are talking about a few things we like. My search for Christmas music I didn't know or have led me eventually to Calypso Christmas music. So we're taking some time to chew on that this week. And I also want to talk about Christmas Calling, parenthetically, Jolly Jones, from Nora Jones and her upcoming Christmas album, I Dream of Christmas, which will be out on Friday. Let's go to my conversation with Alexandra. Then we'll be back on the other side with Ben Jaffe of the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. start today with a new song, a new Christmas song from Nora Jones. Last week, she released Christmas Calling, parenthetically, Jolly Jones, which is the first track from her upcoming Christmas album, I Dream of Christmas, due out October 15th. Let's check it out first, and then we will talk about it on the flip side. I want to hear the music play. I want to dance and laugh and sway. On a happy holiday for Christmas I could call you on the phone Sing a song that feels like home Instead of feeling all alone This Christmas And the snow I have to say, I've thought Nora Jones is one of those artists, along with John Legend, 
who just seems like she was made to make Christmas music. Um, that it always seems it seems inevitable that you know her sort of her selling point, her musical identity is tied to musicality. And in the best songs in the Christmas canon, musicality is one of the central features. Um, and as a result, I find this song, Christmas Calling, completely charming. Uh, it also, it ages well, I have to say. On first listen, I thought it was very nice and it sort of slipped through. But I found this listen just, uh, just now is my fourth or fifth time to it. And I find the, the easy groove catches me. Her voice interests me. Um, and so I, I'm there for it. Um, what was your thought? Yeah, I really liked it. Um, uh, I, I find the whole, I can't remember if it's the third or fourth verse, but the Jolly Jones bit, I think it's just sweet and adorable and um i always forget what a good piano player she is but uh i think this song shows it really nicely and um i think it's a really good christmas song i think it's a really good song and it's also a good christmas song that's so often an important distinction like not just is it a good christmas song but is it actually worth listening to is it actually a good song yeah and, you know, one of the things I liked, I kind of had the Jolly, the, the Jolly Jones thing pop for me, too, in part because I liked that there was something in the song that felt personal, that felt, that felt hers, uh, and that it... I get frustrated sometimes that I think musicians in some ways make their songs too easy. And that the songs ask so little of the uh, of the listener, and I tend to these days more and more respect a song that has a certain amount of privacy to it, and that if you listen, you know more or less where a thought came from, or more or less what it's about. But there's a piece of it that simply it's theirs, and this sort of came out of nowhere to me. Uh, maybe it's a reference that I just don't recognize, but I liked that there was a piece of a Christmas song from Nora Jones that felt to me distinct to her and not just her voice because the song itself is a lovely song, but I could imagine some of her peers doing a similar song, but that song, but that element of it specifically felt very individual to her and, and I kind of like that about it. I did too. And also, um, so, so I guess the last time I was a guest on this show, before I joined the show, we were, um, we were talking about Hard Candy Christmas, a, a song that I love very much, and about the fact that it, uh, it, it touches on the, the sadness that's part of Christmas and the holidays for so many people. And I like the Jolly Jones bit because it all of a sudden acknowledges that, excuse me, that Christmas isn't always happy, um, but often it's not. And that 
she'd like it to be. And that changes the focus of it. And it makes it much more interesting to me. And again, as you said, more personal. Yeah. And the way, and it, the way the phrase, the way the title phrase Christmas calling at first seems like a positive, and then it's a more nuanced thought as the song goes on. Yeah, I like I like that mobility, that intelligence in the song. I have to say, it is one of those occasions where, you know, these days when records come out, there are three or four songs are often released before the album finally makes its appearance. And obviously the idea is to get your interest up for it. This is one of the times for me where that actually worked. Uh, I'm looking, I'm now, I'm now interested in Is I Dream of Christmas due out October 15th. So anyway, we're going to go from uh, Nora Jones to kind of something that we've been taught. We uh, talked a little about uh, Alexandra and I offline. Um, One of my recent uh, sort of Christmas music fascinations is calypso music. And I come to I come to calypso through Christmas. Um, I am just now starting to explore uh, calypso music. So as we go through this conversation, if you are a calypso person and you realize I at some level I don't know what I'm talking about, that's because I don't know what I'm talking about. I am uh, f- figuring it out on the fly. Um, but I am, uh, but nonetheless, it has become, it's become one of my musical interests in part because it's a kind of Christmas music that up to now I didn't have. I've sort of kept, I've, I've, you know, gone a long way down jazz Christmas music holes, a long way down funk and R and B and blues Christmas uh, holes. So kind of as a natural sort of offshoot of that. It's like, where else is something interesting out there? And and I discovered Calypso. So we're today going to uh, pick up a few Christmas uh, Calypso songs. This is by no means the best that exists. It's just simply a few that I particularly like and that have sort of caught my attention and things I have been putting on Christmas mixes uh, recently in the last handful of years. And so, and I've just, and, and it's like a lot of Calypso, a lot of it pe- people don't know. I mean, after Banana Boat song, most Calypso is new to people. So uh, if you already know this, yay. And um, if this is new to you, also yay. Uh, we're going to start with Mighty Sparrow. And Mighty Sparrow is one of the biggest names in Calypso. He, uh, he has such a, a broad catalog that I don't. I'm just. I, I don't have any feeling yet for what is is not representative. I earlier this year got a compilation that I quite like listening to, and when I was looking online at reviews later, they were like, "Oh, this isn't representative. You really need this over there." And so I've checked that over there, and I like it but they don't sound the same to me. And, and then in the process of sort of rummaging around, I discovered uh, 
Mighty Sparrow's Christmas with Sparrow, which was recorded in 63 and 64. And that hit the Christmas album is unlike any either of the other things I know by him. So I'm in the process of seaming the pieces together in my head. But for now, let's go to uh, his version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town from uh, Christmas with Sparrow. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. Checking it twice. Gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're So what do you think about that, Alexandra? Oh, I love it. I love it so much. Um, it sounds like the Christmas records my mom played during our childhood. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I'm not sure how I never heard this before. Or, I mean, it's possible I did, but I don't, I don't know the name. Um, I also am not versed enough in Calypso to speak on it. I would, I would have called this jazz. Um, but I just, his voice reminds me of Nat King Cole, which is me paying a compliment. Um, the instrumentation is perfection. Um, I'm going to be playing it this Christmas for myself. And, um, you know, when people say, oh, there's people who sing Christmas music all year round, I'm like, that would be me. So I, I just think it's, I think it's exquisite. And Santa Claus is Coming to Town is not, in fact, one of my favorite Christmas songs. And I love this version. Yeah, I, I'm, I agree with all of that. And now it feels so odd that this song uh, has not joined the Christmas canon, that this version isn't one that we, we hear regularly because it does that classic version so beautifully. Uh, yeah. It reminds me... I, I, two, two artists come to mind when I think about it. One is uh, Fred Astaire, because there is an elegance and uh, a kind of a playfulness in that vocal, um, as if he's conscious of the game that mm. is Santa Claus is coming to town. And he knows he's playing with the children. And so there's an element of playfulness in it. Uh, and... You know, and Sinatra, I mean, not Sinatra, I'm sorry, and Astaire sort of specialized in that kind of elegant, casual distance. Um, that, uh, so I, that, that struck me. And I also was thinking uh, about Ella Fitzgerald's version um, because it also embraced uh, the game of Christmas, uh, of Santa Claus is coming to town. You know, because it starts off, this one doesn't use the introduction. 
Uh, Ella Fitzgerald uses the introduction. You know, I just got back from a uh, lovely trip across the Milky Way. Uh, just stopped off at the North Pole to you know visit dear old Santa Claus. I, I can't remember all of it anymore. But the idea was she visits Santa Claus, and he says, I only give presents to the good old girls and boys, so, kids, here's what you got to do. And so there's a whole element, obviously, here, as parents talk to kids about this and sing about sing the song. And, and as a kid, you know, even if, even at the point when you're still, still into Santa Claus and still believe, you already probably are suspicious about whether mom and dad can specifically blow the whistle on you. You're suspicious, would mom and dad blow the whistle on you? And so the song itself is kind of a game we play. And, uh, and he plugs into that, but he plugs into it in the most musical, easiest swinging way. That arrangement is absolutely pirate treasure. Uh, it swings oh, yeah. so effortlessly. The horns are so uh, in the, exactly in the right place. There's nothing showy about them. They are all there to support Sparrow's incredibly elegant vocal. Uh, but it's also not about him being, you know, his, his performance isn't showy either. He's singing the song, living the song, and is just right in the exactly right place. Everything about that for me is golden. Yeah, I mean, I, I would encourage anyone who's listening to the podcast to go listen to the whole record, which is called Christmas with Sparrow, because it is just at gold. Uh, it's so, it's not understated. It's just ev everything is in service to the song. And it's, it's badassery, really. It's everyone is so good and they're just laid back. And it is, it is elegant. It makes you think of, it's refined, I think. It's refined badassery. Yeah. Of a kind that doesn't, our, our time doesn't really lend itself to that anymore. No. no. Uh, it's funny. I mean, there was there is an elegance in um, Nora Jones' performance, but it doesn't have the same the same sense of style. Uh, and uh, I had to think about why about the difference I hear in there. There feels like there's something worth worth chewing on, but I don't think we're going to get to it in this session. So. Well, are, are you a Ted Lasso watcher? Have you seen it? I, I'm not. I feel like this okay. is thing I'm going to have to get to one day, but go it's for good. it. It's good. Well, there's a line in it where um, there are two women who are friends and they work together. And one of them uh, is, is, is doing a, it doesn't matter what she's doing, but she says, get this thing because I'm amazing at my job. And the other says, people who are amazing at their job don't have to boast about it. And the first one says, actually that's not the way it works anymore you know you have to you have to promote yourself and i think nora jones if she had well if she had lived in a different time she would be subject to all kinds of racism and sexism so that would change the that would change her story very much but nora jones's singing style and her laid back elegance would absolutely lend itself to the way Sparrow sings. I'm assuming Sparrow is a first. I actually don't know what he's called, um, but uh, Mr. Sparrow yeah. he ah, deserves ah, that respect. Ah, ah. Um, 
but she's a little bit, she's one of those artists who's a little bit maybe out of her time. And it's hard to sing with that kind of, that kind of um, in the pocket refinement, because we live in a time where you're supposed to all the time be like, look at me, I'm so great, hype, hype, hype. And I don't think that's Nora Jones's thing at all. I mean, I've, I've shared a stage with her or, or like played the same, played the same venue with her. And she's just the kindest person. Nobody has a bad thing to say about Nora Jones. There are very few people like that yeah, in the industry, like Emmy Lou Harris and maybe Dolly. And I mean, she's just, she's a bit of a unicorn. Oh, that's great. I'm glad, to, glad to hear that. So when I got this, I was in the process of trying to find more music like I found on a compilation uh, called A Calypso Christmas. And it is, it, I found it on Spotify. Actually, I first found it just looking online. Uh, I think probably going, digging through uh, Amazon Christmas records uh, for download. And I, and I found this. It's 22 minutes long. Uh, it's clearly a fairly cheap licensing of, uh, of a handful of Christmas songs from uh, Calypso Christmas songs. And it is more conventionally what you expect from Calypso. Uh, the arrangements, the performance, far more in the, uh, in the party spirit. And that was what I was hoping to find in the, in the Mighty Sparrow. I have to say, I'm so happy with what I found that I, I'm, I'm, there's no disappointment in the fact that that is not more conventionally Calypso. But I'm still looking for Calypso Christmas songs. And one of my current favorites from this collection is the song uh, Party for Santa Claus by Lord Nelson. And uh, Lord Nelson, the song is from 1964. Uh, Lord Nelson was from Tobago. Uh, his family moved to Brooklyn uh, after high school. And shortly after he arrived in Brooklyn, trying about ready to find his f fame and fortune or trying to find out what his place was in the world, he was uh, drafted and sent to Korea. And while there, he started to explore his gifts for comedy and for singing, and his musical career emerged after that. Um, anyway, we will go quickly to um, the excellent party for Santa Claus. And obviously, the fact that I say excellent means you have an idea how I feel about it. Uh, let's uh, listen to that, and we'll talk more in a moment. Christmas time is the time for giving. We learned that from since we're small. But from year to year, it's the same old thing. Santa's coming to call. We always ignore it or forget it. This we know it's true. So this coming Christmas, let's all make an effort. Get a present for Santa too. Let's trade in the old sleigh and the reindeer for a big car with a chauffeur and a helicopter. So that made me very happy. How, how, are, how about you? I love it. That's dance around Christmas music. That's for like later in the day when you've had a drink or two or yeah, three. Exactly. Yeah, so it's its vibe is so strong that it I didn't right off the bat recognize uh, Santa Claus is coming to town uh, in it. Really? Um, 
<laughs> at where he's going, where that band is going, is so strong that that's just be, that on first listen, second listen, that was simply uh, you know the scenery going by in the window. It was it's so excellent. Um, you know the thing that I, I I was wrestling with with this is that for a long time I wanted my Christmas songs to felt to feel more clearly Christmassy, um, and that if I couldn't hear a clear riff on the uh, on sort of the Christmas standards, I I. I sort of didn't connect that I felt mm. like it it doesn't say Christmas. Um and so it took me a long time to kind of find my way to blues Christmas songs because for the most part they just sounded like the blues. And um but I don't know if it's a function of I've just now heard so many Christmas songs that I will take anything that doesn't sound like a song I already know, uh, or if my general affection for Christmas funk and Christmas R and B has sort of opened the door to other uh, other stuff, or if my affection for dance music has opened the door to if you can dance to it and it says Christmas, I'm there for it. But do you need a Christmas song to sound like a Christmas song to? To, to work for you? I don't know if I have an answer for that right away. I might have to chew on that one. Um, Christmassy doesn't necessarily mean one thing. A, a few years after I, I'd been living in New Orleans for a few years and maybe went home to Virginia pre-Christmas and I was talking with some of my Virginia cousins who are much, much, much more traditional than I am. <laughs> and uh, I said something about loving, you know, Christmas Day in New Orleans and the palm trees and the fact that it was generally warm. And one of them said, Christmas, palm trees. I just can't imagine it. And I just remember thinking, oh, you're missing out because, you know, Christmas all over the world. Um, it's not always snow and cedars and all that. Um, but slightly I, I don't I don't know I'm going to think about your question I, I don't have an answer right yeah. now I will say that while I was listening just now I was wondering which New Orleans band should cover this because I would love to hear one or several give it a go it seems like that's just made for a second line uh for second line brass band right to have a run at it yeah absolutely you know, other one I, I I love off this record. Actually, the record is as I say, the record as a whole is worth your attention. Um, my other favorite off of it is uh, Lord Kitchener and his version of "Bring the Scotch for Christmas." Uh, Lord Kitchener is also from Trinidad and Tobago, and in his case, he went to England and kind of made his musical career there uh, as a young man. And then eventually, then eventually came back. Uh, this is a song he recorded in uh, 1966, and so we'll hear "Bring the Scotch for Christmas," and then we'll uh, come back. And in case anybody wants to look up the record, the name of it is 
a Calypso Christmas, vintage Caribbean Christmas. Is that right? Yep. Okay, got it. Well, it's Christmas time. Trinidad and Porto the craze. They go drink and live till the end of the holidays. They go dance and fed. Everybody is going mad. Well, you never see nothing yet if you didn't spend Christmas in Trinidad. They come to your place and fall in. So I have to say, I quit drinking scotch when I moved from Canada to New Orleans because I always found scotch a warming drink, uh, even on ice, and so I found it hot to drink here. Uh, so the idea that this is what you want to party with um, in Trinidad seems crazy to me, but you know, as you will. So I quit drinking scotch after one night in the summer of 1995, when I was trying to impress a very handsome bartender um, and <laughs> sicker than I really ever want to think about again <laughs> in New York city. Um, I didn't impress him at all. And I paid a price. So, yeah, I don't even really like to think about scotch, but I know some people love it. But, yeah, I don't. Um, I think they must be very tough people in the islands. <laughs> yeah. I like the line about bring me rum. We don't drink such. That <laughs> my... Which seems really wrong, right? Like I thought... It seems wrong, but my guess is that one is like the everyday drink or the uh, or the, it's like the commonplace drink that That's scotch is more likely the uh, the fancy drink oh, i'm gagging <laughs> you know it, it is funny while i was thinking about while i was listening to this i i can't imagine this is a part of trinidadian tradition but I was thinking how this how this song kind of connected back to the earliest, back to days of wassailing. Um, because you think about like in the states, in the in the origin in the in the colonies, that in a lot of cases, uh, Christmas at first was actually celebration of Christmas was banned uh, because Puritan. Well, Puritans were concerned were against it because it was non-scriptural. Um, that Christmas on December twenty-fifth wasn't scripture, and so the Puritans were against that. But other communities were against Christmas because it led to unruliness. Because you had what you had, uh, you know, in the in the wassailing tradition, you had people who were the workers, who were the people in the in the town. Who had who were had less money on uh, Christmas? They would go to the the houses of the wealthy, and basically were expected the they were expecting to be given food and drink, and at least some of it was supposed to be the good stuff, um, though it wasn't though it wasn't always. And you also had the tradition of that caroling at first was often done kind of as a burlesque of singing and it wasn't done as a genuine melodic expression it was often done as kind of an intentional caterwaul and with a kind of a comic idea 
uh, with the I and, um, and this whole sort of social inversion was a major theme to wassailing and the idea of people would be demanding, you know, give me, give me the booze, give me the food. And the wealthiest people in town were supposed to be, basically be the servants and supposed to, supposed to hook people up. And I did so, not know that. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, like a, a lot of the, the history of Christmas in America can be heard as the domesticating of Christmas and as the process of trying to get that whole unruly uh, social inversion out of the process. And uh. so where it once was the people who on Christmas give the wealthiest, give to the poorest, it became give to the people who don't have something, which are children. And then it became give it to your children. And so there became this whole sort of process of trying to get that whole element out. Um, but I don't, I don't imagine, or I don't know that Trinidad, Trinidad had this in its background, but I love hearing people shouting, give me scotch. Uh, well, let's hypothesize this for a moment, though, because this is an artist who's given himself a title. And, you, you know, you mentioned he went to England to make his career, which had to be a little bit brutal for a man of color in the 60s. Um, and so it was a bit revolutionary to give himself a title. Um, and so perhaps maybe this was something that he enjoyed. Maybe maybe scotch was something he loved. Maybe it was something his family loved. But I mean, scotch is associated with um upper class people drinking scotch in their estates. Um, if we're looking at it in that sense, maybe he's saying, I'm going to drink it. Our family's going to drink it. We're not going to drink rum. We're going to drink the good shit. I am allowed to swear, right? Yes, you are. I know I asked this. Okay, thank you. <laughs> it's going to keep happening. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Um, which makes it a bit radical and makes me like the song even more. Yeah, I, I I don't have any feeling uh, for some of that, so I don't. So, but I like that. I certainly like that possibility. And but I got to say, it's one of the reasons I actually love listening to music from other cultures is that it gives me a window in and a reason to start sort of digging in and and examining like what is the role of Scotch, and uh, and I am sure over the course of the future. We'll have time to talk about that and figure it out. Uh, so anyway. If anybody knows anything about it, maybe comment on our Facebook page. Please do. I would love to have somebody fill me in or point me in the right direction as to what do I need to know to better understand this. Um, yeah. That I like reading. I'm really impressed that I've talked this much about scotch without getting queasy. Well... Alexandra, as always, this is awesome. And yes, it is. And everybody, please do check out these records because they're so great.
haven't found any, but you might know. Do you know, did any incarnations of the Preservation Hall Jazz Band before yours record any Christmas music? Yes and no. Uh, I mean, when you when you listen to like Mahalia Jackson's holiday uh, recordings, a lot of the times she isn't specifically singing uh uh, what we would consider Christmas songs, sometimes they're hymns or spirituals that are a reflection of the of that 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 the the season, you know. So I would say that you know Preservation Hall is that's always been a fundamental uh, you know part of what Preservation Hall and really what New Orleans music is is a uh, spiritual uh, spiritual hymns gospel those are those are just embedded in new orleans music so when i put together playlists or i think about holiday music uh, i'm not just thinking about you know the songs that you only hear at christmas time i'm also thinking about a lot of the spiritual songs that you hear around new orleans uh, throughout the year, you know, precious Lord, take my hand or amen, or, uh, you know, his eyes on the sparrow. Uh, the, you know, th those are songs that uh, you would hear, you know, at a, at, at, at a memorial service or a church service in the walls or at a, a funeral procession. So we've recorded all the songs, but never with the, you know, the idea that this was going to be for a holiday project. It was just something that was just a part of the repertoire of the musicians who perform, have performed the preservation call for the last 60 years. Sure. But just to go ahead and put a point on it though, but there is no like, you know, incarnation of preservation hall that cut their version of Santa Claus is coming to town or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> we, uh, no, uh, <laughs> unlike Bruce, uh, unlike Bruce Springsteen, we have not recorded a version of Santa Claus is coming to town. Uh, we had last a couple of years ago. Gosh, it's like my 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 sense of time is 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 off. I, I, I I've lost an entire year somewhere. But so I think 2018 and 2019, we did some holiday songs with PJ Morton and we did a holiday track with Big Frida and we did a holiday song with uh, with Boyfriend. So we did songs that we specifically recorded for the holidays, for, for the, you know, for the holidays one year. And that was really the first time that we, you know, made a holiday, you know, song with like the purpose, you know, with that in purpose. You sure, know? sure. And I'm going to come back to those in a few minutes, but I want, I, I kind of want to put I kind of want to put this conversation in the long arc of Preservation Hall, the entity, and the and also the band. But Christmas music has been part of like the Hall's programming because I think about like Lars Edegren's Creole Christmas goes back into the eighties or nineties. Am I right? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Well, really, it even predates predates a Lars Creole Christmas. He would always, Lars would always organize a, 
a, a, a series of performances. Usually Big Al Carson would be on vocals and he would do ragtime, you know, New Orleans uh, arrangements of, of uh, holiday classics that, that, you know, were adaptable. And, uh, and that became part of, you know, what would happen annually at Preservation Hall. Before that even got started, uh, and I don't know how this tradition um, got started necessarily, what year it got started, but my father would always uh, organize what he called the Santa Claus bands. And there was always there was always a group of musicians that seemed to be traveling through New Orleans around the holiday seasons. There was uh, a, a kind of a, a circuit of street musicians that was a, a lot different than it is today. Uh, they would they would come to New Orleans during different times of the year, and there was always a group of street musicians. Um, one of the bands was Allegra, who used to live in Treme. They were sort of a a medieval renaissance uh, string bands and vocal group. And there was a Bill Russell, the violinist, who was the you know, one of the people responsible for the Hogan Jazz Archives and uh, someone who was very important figure in my parents' life and, and very important to the, the establishment of Preservation Hall. He, he also played violin and he would come out and play. And my brother and myself, when we got a little older, we would come out and play with the band too. And we had written sheet music. My dad had these, these, uh, this written sheet music of holiday music. A lot of it was, was were traditional songs. You just wouldn't hear very often. Um, you know, like, uh, uh, Oh, Oh, Hello, Rose. Uh, what was, gosh, God, you bring back like these memories, uh, of these, uh, songs that we would play, you know, uh, a little, you know, a little town of Bethlehem, and uh, you know, and it was interesting for me. I mean, we're Jewish, but it was kind of a way for my dad to uh, go around the French Quarter, and it was uh, sort of his uh, gift or acknowledgement to all of these businesses and business owners in the French Quarter. It was like a kind of like his version of like strolling serenaders. You know, uh, and we would go. We would go to people's houses. If there was people up on balconies having a a, a holiday celebration, we would play on the street. Uh, we would go play in Pirates Alley because that the echo in that 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 alley next to the St. Louis Cathedral is just so uh, beautiful. And we would just we would go. We would go to Cape Paul's. My dad was friends with Paul Prudhomme, and uh, we'd go to the Whitney Bank and play outside the Whitney Bank or the, the first NBC Bank down on Royal Street. Uh, I mean, it was great until we got, you know, once we got a little bit older, you know, me and my brother, when we got into our teens and my dad was still making us dress up in these like Santa Claus outfits, it, you know, it became, it was, it was like, it was like in that little period where it wasn't cool anymore. It was like, it was cool. And then we became like 12, 13 years old and then it wasn't cool. And then we'd start seeing girls on the street that we knew from school and we'd, you know, turn as red as the outfits. But, uh, but that, that's what we would do. That was like, part of our holiday we'd go to the Pontaba building we'd walk into Treme we'd go over to Buster's on Orleans and uh Burgundy and play at the restaurant there and we would just do that for like two weekends leading up to Christmas it was just a uh, our family tradition 
and um, I've got you know really beautiful memories. I still have the sheet music, and we we still do a version of it uh, on 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 uh, on Christmas Day. I I I still get up very early on Christmas Day, and I go and really just uh, acknowledge my dad and and just this beautiful tradition. I go play uh, Silent Night in the in the uh in pirates alley you know like at eight o'clock seven o'clock in the morning on christmas day when the streets are still empty and it's uh and you know it's the first thing people are hearing in the morning they're just you know you're waking up and the kids are running to the christmas tree and you know it's this lovely beautiful time of the year and this beautiful moment and i've always just imagined how beautiful it must be to you know hear this horn playing that you know and anybody who lives down in the french quarter knows how how sound travels through the french quarter i mean how you know you can hear the calliope from the mississippi river you know all the way to like the bywater and you can hear it all the way uptown you know so my horn I, you can hear it all the way through and people have told me they were on rampart street and i'm not playing loud i'm playing very softly but i'm not competing with anything you right. know Oh, and then great. if I'm lucky, I, I, yeah, I try to time it, uh, just so I, I play right before, right before the bells start ringing, you know, at, at eight o'clock, uh, at the St. Louis Cathedral. So I should go back for people who don't know you and know your story. Who was your dad and give us, give us the quick oh, background. Um, I mean, our, my dad's, uh, it was and is Alan Jaffe. He, a musician and tuba player here in New Orleans uh, for many years, and he and my mom uh, were, were part of the group of people who established Preservation Hall in 1961. And uh, yeah, he's uh, he's with us uh, in spirit, uh, and yeah, he's the I, I the reason I I guess I'm a you know one of the, the reasons i'm a musician today and do what i do right so how has your thinking about christmas music changed over the years how has my um oh gosh how has like that's like that's presuming a couple things that I've got to think about Christmas music. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I don't, I mean, you know, to me, holiday music, it, it's, I, I always, I always think of holiday music in terms of, of capturing the spirit of the season. So when I when I, I think of you know when I'm working on a concert a holiday concert you know most people's go to thought process is oh give them the top ten you know right you know give them jingle bells give them you know uh, joy to the world like give give them like you know give them the top ten and uh, my thinking is oh gosh like. Let, let's capture the spirit of, and the joy of the season, you know? So, and a lot of times it, it, the, it, it's not so much the exact song as it is the, the, 
the intention and the purpose of the performance, you know? Yeah. And I mean, God, there's so many, like, there's so many incredible New Orleans uh, performances uh, that are, that are, that are like classics in my mind, you know? Um, I mean, you know, Johnny Adams, I mean, please come home for Christmas. I mean, just, uh, I mean, that's one of my favorite uh, versions of that song. Bells will be ringing The sad, sad news Oh, what a Christmas To have the blues My baby's gone I have no friends To wish me greetings just once again choirs will be singing yeah, I guess I'm glad you mentioned Johnny Adams who's somebody whose Christmas I mean mind you I think that Johnny Adams is one of those guys one of those singers who could make everything worth paying attention to uh, there are songs that I, I really don't much care for except for the three minutes Johnny Adams is singing them and uh, that um, that he could make almost anything worth worth you paying attention to it. I feel so blessed to not have only heard him and have known him, but to to I, I feel blessed to appreciate them. You know what I mean? Because yeah. there's 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 it really is one of those musicians that never really got uh, beyond the you know new orleans in terms i mean he was i mean no doubt like one of the to me one of the most important singers of the 20th century and it was kind of like our little secret right you know as like you know as like a lot of musicians end up being in new orleans you know yeah uh, so i have to say the first christmas song i'm aware of from you and from the preservation hall jazz band was 2012 and a version of May Every Day Be Christmas with Irma Thomas from the uh, hol- you, from the Holidays Rules uh, compilation. You totally just, I completely forgot about that track. And I, I just had lunch with Miss Thomas. I, and I completely, uh, you're right. You're absolutely right. That was, that was uh, a friend of mine produced that album. Uh, a member of... Uh, the Decemberists, Chris Funk, right, produced that album, and he sent me a list of songs. He said, "Hey Ben, is there, if you could have anybody, you know, if any of these songs resonate with you, and if you could think of somebody who you would love, who you would like to have sing, you know." Uh, and I heard that. I go, "Oh my gosh, I could, I could totally hear like, you know, Miss Thomas doing this song with us." And he says, "Well, let's 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 call her." I was like, "Okay, yeah, <laughs> sure." And uh, we, we, we got together, we rehearsed it, and we tracked it, and Chris flew in from Portland. Uh, it was a beautiful session. And uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. That was, that was like the first song that we, that I believe we recorded with the purpose of it being a holiday, you know, a holiday track. May every day be Christmas 
and every day be blessed let the end of every day be filled with happiness and may the lord be good to you with every rising sun all through the day have a smile for everyone at night time comes a longing to be with ones you love to sit around fireside and dream of stars above so may god bless you and keep you come did you record that was that was that live or was that the band and irma putting her vocals on later that was us well when at that time we that was how we record i mean we record live sure um i mean it's it's, it's interesting it's it's uh it's not a new it's not a uh, like that, that's how people in new orleans have always recorded i mean when when dave bartholomew and pat's domino recorded or little richard at cosmos they there weren't multi-track there wasn't an option to do multi-tracks right you you had you know maybe two or three microphones to capture the whole band and you you spent your time getting a a performance balance in the studio like a volume balance so you might spend you know an hour two hours getting a, a, a placing musicians in a certain part of the room so that you could get the best balance through the microphones. And then you just do the performance in one take. And I got to tell you, like, Miss Thomas is not, she is, she's from that, that school of recording. So after one take, you got to do it in one take with her. Otherwise, you're going to get like the, you're going to get a, uh, the stank eye from her, <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> Like anybody who's performed with her, that's like, you don't want to get that, you know, you don't want to get that look of, we have to do this again, you know, from her. Right. And she, cause she's, she's a, she's a one take person because she's such a pro she's going to get it in one take. Uh, so you have to be ready for her. And usually when, when I've had to do multiple takes with her, we usually go back to the first take. Oh, really? That's interesting. With Miss Thomas, she's the consummate professional. So if she's working through something, or if she's learning something for the first time, she's not. She's going to put in as much time and energy into it to make sure that it's correct. Alan Toussaint was the same way. You know, uh, if they were learning something for the first time, or felt uncomfortable with it these are musicians who didn't have grow up with the luxury of pro tools in the studio where you could just cut and paste and you know drag something over to a different you know space in the track and all of a sudden you know you fixed what you thought was a mistake they they came from the school of whatever you recorded that's what you had to live with for the rest of your life. So it better be good. You know, I, 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 I grew up in that, in that environment and I understand pro tools. 
So I also understand, you know, hey, if there's a little, you know, if there's something that's not quite right or notes a little bit off or the, the rhythm's not quite right or the pitch is a little bit off, I can nudge it. You know, I can nudge those things and I can fix it in what we call post, post-production. Right. Um, and that's just like, a, you know, uh, you know, uh, back when, you know, Alan was recording at CSANE, I mean, you would have to, you know, get out a razor blade and, and tape and just hope that your hand was steady enough. Because when you cut that, like literally cut the tape with that razor, there's no going back. Right. You can't, you know, you're not, there's nothing to fix that, that cut's been made. So, uh, in that regard, you know, Alan and Irma Thomas, they would keep you in the studio until, until it was done. But if they had their part done and you didn't, that's when the stank eye came out. (laughs) (laughs) Did she know may every day be Christmas? She did. And she actually, she, she, when we pulled it out, she said, Oh my gosh. She's like, Oh, that's, I haven't heard that song. Yes, it's, you know, it was one of the, because it's just not a, that, a popular holiday song that, you know, it's not like one of the go-to holiday songs that you hear often. Sure. So when we, we, we kind of dusted it off and it was interesting that there, there was a, a period of time when, you know, uh, the internet was, uh, was like, it still is this incredible uh, tool for research at that time you know, we would, you would get online and all of a sudden you would, you could discover songs, you know, from the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties that otherwise you would have to have like, you know, have like, you know, uh, uh, you know, thousands of records in your collection to, to uncover these songs. And all of a sudden this new thing was happening where you could very easily start to find uh, and research songs that had disappeared from from the repertoire and there was a window and this this song kind of fell in that window of time when artists were going back and and and, and like digging up material that they were hearing for the first time themselves you know and uh that was that this is one of those songs you know there is you know god's dog man we're sitting here talking and like uh one year charlie gabriel came to one of our holiday shows and he said, yeah, hey, Benji, you know, I was laying in bed and I remember this song that my, the nun at my grammar school, Mary Catherine, used to sing. And she taught me when I was nine years old. And it was a Christmas song. It was a holiday song. And he taught it to the band. And we play that every week. We, I don't think we ever recorded it, but we always play that at at, uh, at uh, during the holiday season. The song that this this nun taught Charlie when he was at St. Catherine's, uh, you know, back in the uh, off of Galvez, when he was growing up. That's where he went to school, and um, it's. Uh, we wish you all a merry Christmas. It 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 is it, it's like. Yeah, we, we we wish you all a Merry Christmas. I, I can't, I have to ask, you know what, I'm going to have to ask Charlie if there was a name for it. Uh, 
And we may have, there may be a version of it online somewhere from one of our concerts. Um, but that was, uh, you know, that, that, that's the song that we've been playing in our, you know, that's become part of a, like a standard song in our repertoire for the last, gosh, how many, you know, eight years. I, I was actually going to ask you about that because yes, I've actually found about three versions of it uh, on uh, YouTube. And so oh, no, you did. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I should remind, make sure everybody knows that Charlie Gabriel is the clarinet player, uh, clarinet and vocal, uh, with the yeah, band. Charlie, and is, is he yeah, our Charlie band leader Gabriel. now? I mean, yeah, I, I consider him my band leader. You know, I, I, I go to him for, you know, for leadership and guidance, you know, so he's, he's, uh, he's the elder statesman in the band. Right. Uh, you know, he's 88, you know, made 89 this summer and he's, um, you know, yeah. So under your tenure as artistic director that the, the band has moved into, into more pop spaces, like things like rock concerts and gone in directions that make, you know, jazz purists sort of clutch their pearls with uh, with horror, and that. <laughs> so, but but I have a two part question related to that, and and part of this, I admittedly, I know you know we've talked a little about this, but first, yeah. what's the idea behind going into these spaces, and is Christmas music a part of it? Oh. Well, I mean, Christmas music is definitely a part of it. I mean, every artist tries to do something to acknowledge the season. You know what I mean? Sure. It is it is a beautiful like part of the season. And every artist that I grew up with in the 80s all, you know, all did great, like did really cool, great versions of holiday classics. You know, um, I mean, and. I also grew up with, uh, you know, do they know it's Christmas time at all? Sure. Yeah. You know, that was like, yeah. that was a big, that was a big moment, you know? And what I've come to, to appreciate about moments like the holidays is you have everybody's attention and focus. And it's rare to have people's attention and focus and to, and to have people all feeling the same way about the same thing in like great numbers. You know, it's, you know, usually we're just at each other about everything. Right. But here, this one time a year, it's like, oh, there's a, a reminder that this is about family. This is about community. This is about compassion and, and, and helping one another. So, yeah, artists generally try to tap into that energy and uh, magnify it, you know. Uh, I mean, in terms of, of where the band is today and, and the places we've gone, I, you know, I mean, is there a right or wrong place to play the music that we play? I mean, there's people who would say that, you know, playing music out on the street in a second line is a disgrace. Sure. You know, I've heard, I've heard that. I'm right. like, you know, I, it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. You know, because to me, it's exactly the opposite. It's like the greatest place to play music. It's it's where you're 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 directly connecting with the energy of your community is out on the street. That's where that's like 
the, the that that's where everything is equal, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, from, from whose perspective, you know, I mean, who are these purists? Sure. I, I'm not, I mean, gosh, it's, I, 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 the, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I mean, it's uh, I, to me, it, it's more about people being open to ideas and conversation and experience. You know, when I meet people who are just closed off to ideas and to something evolving and to something becoming new, and they're just they're they're just locked into this idea that things have to be a certain way and can only be this one way that that reminds me of people who draw like lines in the sand or, you know, are not like the people who are most inspiring to me are are the people who are on a constant journey and like a constant discovery and also realize that, 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 you know, life evolves and time evolves and we're not, you know, life is not, uh, you know, like a snapshot. It's just not a postcard. I mean, that's why we have postcards <laughs> to capture. It's so like you know to capture that memory. Sure. Um, I'm 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 nostalgic. I'm nostalgic for the past, but I'm nostalgic for the energy of the past. You know, I'm I'm, I'm nostalgic to say to say, well, who's carrying that that torch forward? Not just not just the 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 the, the specific notes. But the energy of that person, who's carrying the energy of Fats Domino forward? Who's carrying the energy of Professor Longhair? Who's carrying the energy of the meters forward? Like who's who are those people? Who's carrying the Neville Brothers forward? Who's carrying the Dirty Dozen forward? Like who 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 they they because they they all carry big torches, man. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, part of what I think is so interesting about what you've done, and for me, I think what I my takeaway from your effort to put preservation hall jazz band in to keep it in the public eye is that in a way, as a way of asserting that there's still a place in the, in the broader popular community, uh, broader popular culture for, for new Orleans music, for, you know, for a way of performing, for a spirit of performing, for a way, a form of group interaction, um, and that other bands of similar vintage are, you know, don't, don't have that kind of an ear. And for instance, we'll talk in a few minutes about the Spotify singles, but the bottom line is, is that you have, uh, three or four Christmas songs in a space dedicated to streaming and which is a space that has, has certainly from the start skewed towards youth and towards younger listeners. And so, you know, it seems like that by putting, you know, putting yourself in, you know, rock concert formats, by putting yourself in doing commercial breaks for, you know, for football games, by doing these different things like a midnight, uh, like a midnight preserves where you have, guests who are playing jazz fest coming into the, into the hall to play with the hall band doing things that all of which put preservation hall and a concept and a, a concept of how to play music into the current musical conversation. That's what you said 
what you said resonates with me at the specifically when you said musical conversation. You know, my 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 something that took me a long time to understand is my parents never saw themselves as like being in, in like the business of music. They they never that was never like why they got involved with preservation hall and why they shaped and created what they did to them it was a way to connect with people and it was a way for people to to see something and embrace something that was important and transformative yeah uh you know because they don't play this style of music in europe does that make it not does that make it less important no i mean that that's what you become the messenger of and and that's you know the the sort of missionary aspect of what and who and why we do what we do is is the the connection that we that we have with people that that special connection that happens at a second line or at a, a, a funeral procession or at you know uh, uh, at jazz fest or wherever this music's being performed and then I'm not just talking about preservation hall music, I mean, real New Orleans music by New Orleans musicians. We've all had transformative experiences. I mean, I hear people talk about James Booker at the Maple Leaf and, you know, Professor Longhair and, you know, stories from Allison Minor and, you know, and, and Quint Davis, and, you know, recording Honda Wanda and, you know, just these people who are so touched by music, you, you don't have a choice but to do what we do. That's really what it's all about to me. I, 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 I do everything I do out of respect for the, the, all of the people and the tradition and the history of all the people who have sacrificed before us. And God bless every one of them. We wouldn't be here today without them. So I have the utmost respect for the history of the music. I don't believe that, that, any one of those musicians would be who they are today if they had just repeated what had come before them. They were repeating what the person before them did to become that person. You know, Fats right. Domino and, and, and Dave Bartholomew and Smiley Lewis were kind of repeating what Louis Armstrong did, you know, not playing the same style of music, but they were like, oh, you write your own music and you, you appeal to the kids and you, kind of build an audience and you get your music out there and you get other people to record it and you perform with other people and you, you go out and you work hard and you write songs and you become the best musician you can be and you make a lot of friends and you build a community. And that's, that's what I take away from it. I, that's what I, I take away from Jelly Roll Morton and King Oliver, and, uh, you know, every great artist that that's come from New Orleans at some point you, 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 you only hope and wish that you'll be embraced by uh, a larger community of musicians. I mean, the music community is not just New Orleans. The music community is international. It's an international community. It's an international language. Sure. I was going to pick up there because I was thinking, I just had this a couple nights ago, uh, Sunday night, my wife and I were... We're we're you know sort of finishing up the night, 
and we heard a brass band. And that there was like at 10.30 at night, there was a band playing down on Chapatulas. And I think it was that it was connected to, I think one of the second lines runs out of the Rock Bottom Lounge. And yeah. it was some kind of an event, I assume. But at 10.30 at night, we hear a band. And so, you know, we go out in the street to go listen. And, yeah. and the idea that one of the things that you see, particularly with brass bands, but I think it also applies to, you know, to Preservation Hall, is how the, the musicians and the fans are a part of the musical community of that moment. And that, for instance, I mean, you, you see video of the, of the hall in, in, its, you know, in its early days, and, and even now, and it's such an intimate room that it is very clearly a musical a musical conversation that also involves the audience, not just as the people to watch it and enjoy whatever the musicians are doing, but at some level. But the musicians are very clearly responding to them, and and in a room that intimate, able to connect to who's in front of them, and at some level ride their energy or ride something that you pick up out of the room well it's like it's i mean yes you're absolutely right i mean it's like a it's like a great like preacher being able to like work the room you know um i mean when we perform there's 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 places on earth where we feel comfortable performing where we where they recognize what we're doing and and, and we immediately it just feels like home to us you know, when we went to Cuba, when we went to Haiti, when we go to Colombia, Mexico, uh, uh, Brazil, yeah, music in those those places still serves a uh, an important social function, and in many ways, it mirrors the social function that music plays in New Orleans. You know, when you go to other places, when you take our music and you put it in a concert hall where people sit and listen you you have to adapt to that experience you know it, it can be disarming and it can actually uh uh you know really throw you for a loop the first time you sit and play in a concert hall where people are are being pulled what they what they perceive as polite by sitting and listening to the concert and not participating uh it's not their fault they are from a community which is most of America, where that where that's what you do, you right. sit and listen, you know. And New Orleans is that rare place, you know, not just in America, but in this in the universe, in the country, in the world, where music is a communal act. Yeah, uh, you know, and you you'll find it like you'll find it in you know black churches around the country where music and praise and uh is a communal it's a communal act you'll find it in the uh you know the latino community where music is like a communal act where it's associated with dancing you know you go to houston or you go to parts of los angeles or you know el paso or jesus i was just up in stanford and my god it was like so beautiful to drive around stanford connecticut and people had these sound systems set up on the corners. And it was like, I, I, it just, it, it felt like I was, you know, 
I was like on Claiborne underneath the overpass on like super Sunday, you know, with like music just blaring out of people's cars and bands, you know, so it is, it happens in pockets. New Orleans is that, that, that rare place where it's, it's like not just on a street corner, but it's, 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 it's seeped into every, you know, it has seeped out of like the sixth ward and the seventh ward and ninth ward into every neighborhood in the city. I went to the mall and I sit on Santa's lap and I said, Santa, I want something new for my garage. And he said, what might that be? I leaned into his ear and I said, boom, boom. I've been on it, but I've also been nice. I made a wish list and I checked it twice. I want a new Porsche and a matching Benz. Santa, let me show you how big free to spend. Lips are red, pockets are green. Tears are season to be queen. Silver and gold on my key ring. My gifts need gasoline. Make it jingle, 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 make it jingle. So, how did the Spotify singles come about? Uh, really came about through a friend of mine who is was uh, became an engineer at Spotify and called and was like, hey, let's, uh, you know, would you guys, uh, what do you think about this idea? And I was like, are you kidding? I think it's amazing. Like, let's, let's, let's try it. You know, I mean, yes. And uh, that was when we just started like tossing around ideas of, you know, what could be what, you know, how could we do this? What would it look like? And coming up, you know, a lot of times these conversations start with like casting. When you just like cast an enormous net, you know, and you're like, well, just get every song. Like, you know, let's just look at everything. Like, let's pick our favorite songs and like who's doing what and what are the possibilities. And is it crazy to think that we could do like, a song with Big Frida. And like, I, you know, I remember like, you know, standing in Preservation Hall, like, I don't know how many years ago, 12 years ago, and Big Frida was performing for the first time. And, and I think it was in advance of us doing a show with Big Frida at the Kennedy Center, which might have been one of the first times Big Frida traveled outside New Orleans. And Ron Rona from the Bingo Show produced this event where we showcased a lot of bands from New Orleans, uh, Givers and uh, uh, Big Frida. And I'm just trying, you know, Preservation Hall was part of the part of it. And to me, it's it was like, oh, well, of course, I don't expect Big Frida to like be a jazz musician. Big Frida comes from like a long line of New Orleans performers. Uh, what I mean is people with Big Frida's spirit have, have existed in New Orleans forever. So of course that makes sense to me, you know, and I would love to. And that's, that, you know, yes, I love, I, 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 I love the work that Boyfriend does. And, you know, PJ Morin, I consider a friend and an inspiration and someone who's yeah, very important 
part of the music community here. So you just start talking to these, you know, you start thinking, Hey, I have this idea and we should get together and like, maybe the song would work. We should try it. And let's see if it, you know, if it, if, if it, uh, let's get in the same room together and see if it feels good. Right. And that, that was how it all, that's, that's what happened. Yeah. We just, you know, just threw a bunch of ideas at the wall and we, you know, looked and, you know, experimented until we found something that stuck and the, you know, just went in head first. I would imagine. So you do a big Frida's make it jingle. And I would imagine the challenge of that is figuring out how to, how to simulate bounce or how to do a version of bounce with a live band and your instrumentation, because so much of that comes from uh, drums and comes from program beats. How did you make that translation? Uh, well, I mean, you know, other bands have done it. I mean, you've heard, I mean, you, yeah, I, I hear brass bands playing bounce, bounce out on the street all the time. I mean, the tempo and the tempo and the, the pocket, when I say the pocket, I don't mean the literal rhythm of bounce beats, but the pocket of bounce is the same pocket as like second line music. So for like Walter, our drummer, he feels very comfortable playing bounce, like rhythms and beats. Like if Walter was right here right now, without even having a metronome, he could play like, he would play a bounce like to like 0.01 bpms he can he can like like lock right into it because it's, it's just part of like it's like someone who has perfect pitch he could play a bounce beat and be like right on to a song without a metronome right um and and he grew up with like a lot of his a lot of walter's cousins and relatives were part of the early bounce scene and part of like the master p scene and you know um so he all of this is like very natural for us and it, yeah, I mean, when I think about like all the musicians who played with like uh, Fats Domino back in the day, all those guys were jazz musicians, sure, playing R and B. So I mean, just for jazz musicians to play New Orleans jazz musicians, I should say specifically, as you make that distinction, to play balance is not. It's very. It's just part of our language. Sure. You know so. Um, to play those program beats, it actually sounds really cool to me to do it. You know, it's kind of like um, when I, I remember like on VH1 when they would do those unplugged performances. And I remember seeing LL Cool J doing all of his songs with uh, an acoustic band and live drums. And that was really the first time that I had seen that. It kind of predated like the roots for me. Yeah. But all of a sudden I saw like things that had, had like I had only heard as like program drums and program beats being played by a live band. It all of a sudden just opened my head up is, oh, my God, this, you can do it this way. You know, you, you, and then the roots just like were a live band playing hip hop. And so it's just like, oh, oh, it doesn't have to be a drum machine. It doesn't have to be an 808. It can be a bass drum and tuba. Right. So one thing that struck me when I heard your version of uh, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, with Boyfriend, is how cabaret it sounded. Was that your intention? Yeah. I, 
kind of, but it sort of just like happened that way. In fact, uh, when boyfriend was singing, she, she, I always record everything because you just never know when you're going to have a good take. Sometimes when the director says, okay, action, you're, you get nervous and, you know, sometimes you can like overperform. So oftentimes the most relaxed that musicians are, are, are during rehearsals. And from what I recall, like we were still trying to figure out the arrangement and this was a very new process for her. Uh, usually she's like, you know, she writes music with Big Frida. So boyfriend usually builds tracks and then does her vocals at the end. And as the way we record is we do the song live and with the vocals live so that we can interact with the vocalist and all those little subtle nuances, you know, time nuances or, uh, you know, inflections in the, the, uh, the, the timbre of, of their voice and pitch of the voice, we can, you know, we, we can be right there to catch them musically. I remember we were done with the track and I was like, oh, well, we just got it. We just did it. That was it. <laughs> and she was, she goes, uh, huh. Well, that was, that's unusual for me because that's not how I normally record she was like, really? Like, you think it's done? I'm like, come listen to it. Like, let me work on it a little bit. Come listen to it. And it was like, oh my gosh. It's <laughs> like, I don't think we're going to, it can get any better. Like, that's the trap. It's like, exactly. You just have to know when that moment is. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. As a cactus, you're as charming as an eel, Mr. Green. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. So, so that, so sort of the bump and grind cabaret quality was a natural sort of, you know, communication of between between the uh, between her and you that kind of became the evolution of the uh, of the idea or intuitively you recognized this was a natural place for the song to go with her yeah i i, I kind of intuitively knew in fact i remember that we uh we we we, we when we started rehearsing it we had drums we had walter playing drums but it felt like it was just locking the tempo in too much. It didn't feel like, uh, like the way that Broadway singers sing where the tempo is, you know, the, the, the lyrics and the melody kind of drive the tempo, you know, whereas, you know, a lot of times drummers are, 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 are they're, they're the metronome, they're the heartbeat of the band, you know, so it just, I remember it feeling like, oh, this is like a little bit too locked in. It's not, it needs to feel a little bit more loose in terms of time. And if you go back, there's like a couple moments where the time kind of kind of stops and then it comes back in again. Um, 
And I remember I just, I, 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 I was like, Hey, Walt, why don't you take like, why don't you take a little break, man, while we like get the parts together. And he took the break. And like, it was during that break that we recorded the track. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, now, it wasn't like, and now he'll never leave the room again. Uh, well, I mean, that, interestingly, like that wasn't the intention, but when it was done, it was done. And it was like, oh my gosh, we could do it again with drums, but it's not going to be as good as it is already. Right. You also, you, so you worked with singer and keyboard player PJ Morton on a version of uh, Winter Wonderland. Was there yes. a version that you used as the model for your arrangement? Oh, gosh. I'm trying to think if there was. Is there a Ray Charles or Frank Sinatra version of it? Both, yes. There are, right? Yeah. I, I think that those were the two versions that we were thinking about. I mean, when when PJ and I were talking about the song and like an arrangement of it, I kind of, um, do you know that scene in the Blues Brothers where... Uh, where all of a sudden they're in like it's the end of the movie and they they're performing this big concert and they and, they, and they, he's singing Heidi 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 Ho yeah um, and but all of a sudden like he does a twist and all of a sudden like it's a dream sequence where the whole the whole band is all of a sudden wearing tuxedos right and it's set up like a big band and they're all like just like dressing jeans and t-shirts but all of a sudden for like this little three minute segment they're all in tuxedos and then it snaps out of it and back into reality i kind of had that in my mind where I, I i saw pj being sort of this you know this you know, in a tuxedo with us in a tuxedo like in a big band sort of arrangement and and this was like this was how you know how it would be delivered like this is that was really the the, the idea behind the arrangement wow and and the, and, and the approach to the song Sleigh bells ring, are you listening? In the lane, snow is glistening. A beautiful sight, we're happy tonight. Walking in a winter wonderland. Uh, gone away is a bluebird. Here to stay is a new bird. He sings a love song as we go along. Walking in a winter wonderland. In a manner we can build a snowman. Then pretend that he What did PJ think of that? Oh, PJ was like, hey man, we should do a whole album. <laughs> he was ready. He was like, this is he was like, I never get to do this. He's like, I never, you know, it's like I was like, PJ, if you ever want to do an album of of standards, that would be like absolutely we're the guys to do it, you know. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. One of the things I thought was interesting as I was preparing for today's conversation was it occurred to me that of all the songs we've talked about, there's only one that people can actually buy. And that's like the Irma Thomas collaboration on Holiday's Rule. Right, right. How do you think about the fact that so much of your music you know, these days lives primarily in a, a, a digital streaming world? I, I mean, I was one of the early, I mean, I, 
I, I saw it coming hard and fast. I mean, I lived through the transition from LPs to cassettes and from cassettes. Uh, you know, then there was a period of time where we lived with LPs and cassettes. And then it was the transition to CDs and then the transition to, to, to digital streaming. So I lived through a lot of this, a lot of conversations that would happen, you know, oh my gosh, you could go to Radio Shack and buy cassettes and just tape songs off the radio. It's going to kill the music industry. Um, you know, oh my gosh, CDs, like you can make a CD for 90 cents as opposed to this, but they're selling them for $20. So they're selling them for more and making them for less. And they're just reissuing all, you know, there was always this conversation that was going on that I was aware of. What I took away from it is, is this is not uh, a business uh, like McDonald's. You don't go to McDonald's, you know, you're not just gonna always go back and it's always gonna be the same way. You, the product's not always gonna be the same, right? So what 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 is it that we can control? You know, what what are the things that that um you know the business is bigger than preservation hall. I mean, we don't we never sold albums like that many albums, you know. But I mean it, it always it always helped to pay the bills. Uh live music was always the most important aspect of of our livelihood, you know, and for us as musicians, it was always the most important aspect of our careers is having that, being able to perform live. That's something we look forward to. And something that drives us is, is having that connection, live performance connection. With, and I don't see that going anywhere. You know, I, I, I actually see live music growing again. You know, uh, God knows we have, a lot of growing to do because we went to zero, right. right? So we've got a lot of growing to do. But I, I'm talking about you know when live music was at its apex, you know at its height. I'm I I, I believe that it's gonna it's gonna grow even bigger than that. And happening like alongside it is going to be this, you know, be this this uh, a, a new generation of of uh, like my daughter who are you know, born, were born in the, in, into digital, into the digital age. So she never knows, she'll never know. She never knew a time without cell phones. You know, those kids yeah. are, those, those, those kids are in their thirties now. You know, if you're like 22 or younger, you don't, you never knew a time without cell phones and you never knew a time without the internet. So, uh, it's you know it, 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 it's an ability to adapt um i mean i i i i i i don't like giving away music for free i i i wish there was a way to properly compensate musicians uh, but we this genie's been let out of the bottle and it's virtually impossible to find a way to put her back in there
Thanks to Ben and Alexandra for the time and the talk. You can find Ben on Facebook at Preservation Hall Jazz Band and Alexandra at Alexandra Scott Music. If you have comments, questions, or something to share, you can find me at 12 Songs of Christmas. Remember, if you want my 2021 listeners-only Christmas mix, send me an email at alex at myspiltmilk.com. Thanks to AF The Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. If you haven't already done so, follow, subscribe, or do what you have to do to get 12 songs in your podcast feed. That way, you don't miss an episode, and the algorithms work in our favor. In my conversation with Ben Jaffe, we talked about Preservation Hall Jazz Band's Spotify sessions and recording songs with Boyfriend, Big Frida, and PJ Morton. They also cut an instrumental version of Jingle Bells on their own. So we'll close with that. Talk to you next week. <laughs>